Well, today we're back in the book of Psalms. We started that last week. Psalms is the biggest book of the Bible, 150 chapters, by far the biggest book of the Bible. It's a collection of songs that people through history have written, primarily uh, King David, he wrote most of them, but other people like Solomon and Asaph and others wrote some of the Psalms that we read. And they range from Psalms of adoration and thanksgiving to God to to psalms that express doubt and express fear, to psalms that express commitment and sometimes contrition. And this contrition theme is what we want to look at today. We're going to look at Psalm 51. So if you have a Bible, you can open up uh, to that place. You know, as we approached Halloween this week and then the week after the elections, it just made me think of a phrase that is often associated with either one of those. It's the skeletons in the closet. Skeletons in the closet. Have you heard that before? That, that when, when someone's running for office, someone will dig up an old skeleton in their closet, something from their past, something that they had done that they thought was gone and passed and dealt with, and it's brought back into the present. Or maybe it's something that, like Halloween, it's a hallway you don't dare walk down because it, it invokes feelings of fear and feelings of shame and dirt. You're reminded of things that you thought you, you'd put in the past and forgotten. But sometimes the bones start to rattle in our closets and we hear them. And it may be a message from God telling us, hey, there's some unfinished business with the skeleton in your closet. And I'm bringing it to your attention today. I don't know what your skeletons are. We all have them. Some are far worse than others. But most of us would agree, these are things we don't like to talk openly about. These are things we'd rather not let anybody else know about us. But these things are true about us. And so in Psalm 51... Uh, as it is with a few of the psalms, there's actually an introduction to the psalm. And it's very important you understand what the introduction is about. So listen to this introduction to Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. There is a context to this psalm. And it's uh, an incident that happened with David and a lady named Bathsheba. Many of you know the story. Some of you don't. And it's very important we go back and revisit that story because it, it'll impact you in how you listen to this psalm. So what's the deal with David and Bathsheba? David was a great military leader. He was a revered king of Israel, probably the most famous king that had ever lived. He followed King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. Saul um, rebelled against God, so God went after David, a man that he saw integrity and purity in his heart and elevated him. If you remember, David's the one who took on the giant Goliath and defeated him. And David was a warrior. He attracted men who liked to fight around him. And so when David became king, he was known for his ability to lead his men into battle. But there was a particular time when David chose not to go into battle, and we read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So the other men are off on the battlefield. It says it's the springtime. It's the time when people go to war. It's almost like it's like hunting season, though you're hunting other people from other nations. And it was like, or the NFL, this is the time of year that we just go to fight other people. And so it was that time of year, and all the fighting men went off, but David stayed back in Jerusalem, hung out at his house. Now, I don't know why he did that. There's no cable TV. You know, there's, there's no internet. All of his buddies are gone. So I don't know what David was thinking unless he was thinking that this was a time to cause a little trouble. So here's what unfolds. It happened. <laughs> I think that's funny. It happened. It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. By the way, you could walk on the roof of a house because the houses weren't pitched like ours. 
houses in the Middle East often were built on slopes and had roofs that were flat. It, it, it formed kind of a sun deck. You could actually go up on the roof and, and sit and do work. It was another room to the house. So he's up on the, on the roof, and he's walking around the roof of his house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. That just tells me he's taking a long look. My, is she something else? And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sees this woman. He says, hey, guys, go, go check on her. I'd like to know a little bit more about her. They come back, say, she's Bathsheba. She's the, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, it, it, it almost appears that David recognizes some of those names. Maybe not Bathsheba, but her father Eliam. Sounds like he might know that name, but I know this for sure. He definitely knew who Uriah was. See, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's elite forces, it was like David had a special ops team of 30-plus men, and if you read in 2 Samuel 23, there's a listing of all of them and some of their exploits. I mean, these are like superheroes. Some of them did incredible things, defeated large numbers of, of warriors single-handedly. And when that whole list is, is um, laid out, the very last name on that list, Uriah the Hittite. It's as if the author of 2 Samuel says, oh, you need to remember this guy specifically. And they put the name at the end so it kind of lingers with you. Uriah the Hittite, isn't that the guy that was the wife of Bathsheba, the one who David raped his wife? Yeah, that's the guy. Why would David do that? That's, that's his loyal um, fighter, probably a friend of his. I know. I know. That's what makes it even worse. See, Bathsheba has no idea why she's being called to see the king. She might be thinking, oh, my goodness, the king cares about me, and I'm all alone. My husband's deployed. He's going to check up on me. She walks in, and there's not a lot of explanation. It almost sounds like she walks to the door. He throws her on the bed and rapes her and sends her back. I'm thinking, what, David, what are you thinking? What if she tells her husband when he returns? And David probably knows this. Uriah is so loyal to me, he will believe me over his own wife. So months pass, and she's pregnant, and she lets David know, this is your baby. My husband's not been around to conceive with me. It's yours. And so David has a plan. David calls for Uriah to come back from the battlefield, and he sits down, chats with him, checks up on how the war's been going, gives him a gift, probably something very nice to to tell Uriah, I'm a pretty generous guy. Now, why don't you go back and... Spend some time with your wife before you go back to the battlefield. The next morning, David wakes up. He hears that Uriah never went home. Uriah actually slept outside the door of his house. David said, what are you thinking? Any man who's missed his wife for that length of time would have been desperate to get home to their wife. And Uriah says to him, how can I enjoy the comfort of my home and the embrace of my wife when my fellow soldiers are out camping on the battlefield? No, I can't do that. It just reminds me that the tension of loyalty that our military face, there's a movie that just came out called Indivisible, and it really highlights that, that those who are in the military have a fierce devotion to their country and their cause. 
And yet at the same time, there's this devotion to family, and sometimes there's tension between the two. Which dominates? Which will win? There's a divided loyalty or a shared loyalty here. And so Uriah is very committed to his soldiers, and he loves his wife, but he's trying to do both. And so David says, okay, why don't you stay one more day? Tonight we'll feast before, you send, before I send you back. And that night, they wine and dine, and um, they put extra wine on Uriah's side of the table. So much that he get, becomes drunk, and David says, well, if he's drunk, he won't think straight. He'll go home and hopefully wake up and be next to his wife, and they'll make love, and then he'll think it's his baby. But he doesn't go home. He actually sleeps on David's couch. David says, I can't, I can't get this guy to go sleep with his wife. So he writes a letter, seals it, gives it to Uriah, and says, give this to the commander of the army, Joab, when you get to the battlefield. Now, think about this. This letter actually tells Joab the instructions of how we're going to eliminate Uriah. He says, put him on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, and then pull your men back and leave him alone so that he's struck down. And then he gives those instructions on this letter to Uriah and says, deliver this to the commander, because David knows Uriah is so loyal he won't peek at that letter. I mean, think of, the, think of what kind of the character of Uriah, and yet... David's taking advantage of it. He delivers the letter to Joab. Joab follows the orders. Uriah is struck down. Word is taken back to the king. The king says, well, things like that happen on the battlefield. So sad. Then he takes Bathsheba as his wife, and she has a baby. And everything looks good at this point. David has averted the stain of his sin, or so he thinks. Because all along, someone was taking note of everything he did. And that was the eye of the Lord. And so it says in that chapter of Scripture, 2 Samuel 11, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And God is restless over this. God begins to shake the bones in the closet by sending a prophet named Nathan to visit David. Nathan comes to David and he tells him a story. Now, When I say story, it's not like a made-up parable because David hears the story as if this is actually happening. He said, said, King, there were two men. One was very rich and had a number of, of sheep, and there was another man who was poor who had only one. In fact, the one sheep was so precious to him, his little ewe lamb, that it became like part of his family. And a visitor came to the rich man, and so the rich man decided to offer a feast and to slaughter one of the lambs. But he didn't want to give up one of his own. Instead, he took the one lamb of the man who was poor. And when David heard that, he became enraged. And he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looked at him and said, David, you are that man. It reminds me of the the scene in the movie, A Few Good Men, when Tom Cruise is pressing on, on Jack Nicholson and says, I'm just going for the truth. And he said, you can't handle the truth. You know, Nathan's kind of like that. David, you're the man. And David goes, oh. And he's caught. And the bones are rattling pretty loud now because all the things he tried to stuff in the closet are starting now to reach out. And David had been carrying all this guilt and shame for all this time but thought he could just ignore it. And ignoring sin is not the way to deal with it. There's a much better way, a much healthier way to deal with it. And the reason it's so important you, you hear the background of this psalm because when you understand the depth of sin that David committed, 
I don't think there's a single person in this room. There may be. I could be wrong. But I doubt if there's anybody in this room who's done worse than David. But you've done some bad things. I've done some bad things. And this psalm is in Scripture not to tell us about David, but to tell us about God and how to approach God when you've blown it. See, some of you have come in this room today and you've got stuff you're ashamed of. You've got, you've got things stirring in your head or stirring in your heart and you don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to put them behind you. And I want you to listen to what this psalm says about God and what God can do. It's also important that you understand that grace is a very scandalous thing. See, we sing very glibly about grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Oh, I love grace and God forgives me and that's, that's all, all good and wonderful. But you need to understand how counterintuitive that is, how that clashes with logic. Because I want you to think from Bathsheba's perspective or from her father's perspective. This man raped my daughter. This man killed my son-in-law. You think you can just wipe away his sin like that and he goes scot-free? People would die for what he did. You can't just wash it away. You just can't say, I forgive you. If that was your daughter and some man, maybe her, the boss at work, got her pregnant, arranges for the murder of her husband, then he takes her as his wife. You're her father. What's going on in your heart? And the law says to that man, we're going to let him go. You go, that's not fair. You can't let him go. That is wrong. There is something about grace that strikes us as being so, so wrong, so counterintuitive, but that's what makes it grace. If you want God to do what seems fair, it's not grace. And I'm just telling you, it is hard to grasp because there's a part of us that loves grace, and there's a part of us that also wants God to be just. And what do you want God to be toward you? David appealed to the God who has grace because this is so true. Your sin may be great, but his grace is greater. No matter how big your sin deal is, God's grace is bigger than even that. And that's what David speaks to us through the psalm. So I'm going to read most of the psalm. You can follow along with me if you'd like. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward part and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
We learn a lot about the effect of sin on David by his initial request in this prayer. And so I want to look at those. What, does, what, does, what was sin doing to David, and what does sin do to us? Um, first of all, he prays for mercy. God, according to your mercy. Mercy is a request not to get what you deserve, which reveals David feels guilty. He knows what he deserves. He knows he deserves justice. But he's asking God, would you, would you give me grace in this moment? Would you not give me what I deserve? See, sin makes us feel guilty, and it should. People say that guilt is a bad thing. We need to eliminate it. Not always. Not always. It, it, it needs to start with guilt. God hardwired us so that when we cross a line, Something happens inside. It's like a little alarm goes off. In fact, if you never feel guilty about anything, I say something is seriously wrong with you. Your heart's in a bad place. Ted Bundy, who murdered 28 individuals, said he never felt guilty about it. That's one sick man. Guilt can be a good thing. Now, I recognize there's a false kind of guilt. There's a a kind of guilt that you feel when you shouldn't feel it. And I would say that often happens out of immaturity. Kids feel that oftentimes. When mom and dad get a divorce... Sometimes the kids will say, we're responsible for that divorce. No, you're not. It wasn't you. And yet that's a, that's a guilt, but it's an unreal guilt. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real guilt. When, you, when you've actually sinned and it bothers you, well, that's a good sign. Consider yourself a privilege because God gave us guilt as a gift so that then we could address it. I was reading an article uh, that came out in Psychology Today eight years ago. It was written by a lady named Dr. Marianne Fisher, and she entitled it, Why It's Good to Feel Guilty. Now, recognize this is not a Christian. This is someone that doesn't profess at all in this article to follow the Bible, and yet she says guilt has a good purpose. She begins the article sharing an experience in her backyard. She invited a bunch of women over. They're sipping on wine, and they begin to talk about their guilty pleasures. One lady says she indulges in these decadent chocolate desserts on occasion, and she knows it's wrong, but she does it anyway. Another woman shared how she watches some trashy TV shows she shouldn't be watching. And then one woman said, I'm having an affair, and the whole group got silent. It was as if she dropped a bomb in the circle. It it was like all those other things were minor compared to what this woman just said. All these people, they're not Christians, are, are listening going, whew, that's a different level. This is something totally different than eating chocolate, okay? They begin to ask her questions about it. And one lady said, does it make you feel guilty? And she said, you know, it does a little bit, and I probably should feel more guilt, but I don't. Even she recognized the fact that she should feel guiltier. See, when you start becoming numb to guilt, it's it's because you're not listening to God and you're shutting God up. If you are feeling the rightful guilt, it's because God is trying to activate you to do something about it. In fact, she says at the end of her article, guilt is what makes us realize that we did something wrong and that we probably have to fix it somehow. Now, she's right in that. Guilt says... something's got to be done about this. But she's wrong in thinking you can fix it because David couldn't fix it. Whatever you're dealing with in regards to your sin, you can't fix it either. You can't remove the guilt. David is asking God to blot it out 
What does he mean by that? It's this picture as if God has a ledger which is recording all of your misdeeds, and he's basically saying, God, would you take the white out and just cover all the things I've done wrong so it's never seen again? That's what he's asking God to do. So I don't have to face the consequences of that. He also feels something else. He asks God to wash him and to cleanse him. Why? Because he feels dirty. Sin makes me feel dirty. It makes me feel guilty, and at times it also makes me feel dirty. Not always, but there are certain sins, and I would say sins that involve sex are often the dirtiest. In fact, we call someone who's got a mind that deviates sexually as a dirty person, but it is. Uh, if, if you've been involved in pornography, if you've visited a prostitute, if you've had an affair, there's something about you that just feels like, ugh, this just feels wrong. It feels dirty. It feels filthy. And then, then you can't get it off. You can't wipe it off. It's like sin has stained me. And as, as hard as I scrub, I, I, as hard as I pray, it just doesn't take it off. How do I get rid of this stain of my sin? It's one thing for God to say, you know what, I've, I've, I blotted it out. But there is a part of us that says, but I want to feel clean again. I, I don't want to carry this dirt around the rest of my life. I believe that is why God has said in Scripture often in regards to forgiveness that, that we are cleansed. Not only does he forgive us, but he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And one of the symbols of that is through baptism. When, when the apostle Paul had been Saul, he was a man who, who sought to arrest Christians and sometimes even murder them. And he was on the road to Damascus to arrest some Christians when he was arrested by this blinding light and then heard the voice of Jesus. And for three days he was blinded until a man named Ananias came to see him. When Ananias came, he said, the Lord has sent me to restore your sight. And then he said to, to Saul, arise and be baptized, washing your sins away. Because there's an imagery that's connected here. The water has no magic. But what it symbolizes is what God is doing on the inside. I am washing you clean of sin. Have you ever worked in the yard and you're hot and sweaty and dirty, grimy, and how desperately you want the feeling of being clean again? And you go in the shower, you take a bath, and all this stuff gets washed off. That's how it feels spiritually. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The feeling when you surrender to Jesus the same thing that was confirmed in your baptism, that, that I'm a new person. I get to start over. I am clean. There's a cleansing. David's calling out, God, cleanse me, and I will be clean. And then he goes even further, and he talks about this helplessness, that sin made him feel helpless. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. All these words, iniquities, transgressions, sins, are all kind of basically saying the same thing from a different angle. The choices he's made, the way he's rebelled against God, all these have gotten him into trouble. And he says, it's always before me. It's like everywhere I look, it's staring me in the face. I can't get away from it. He recognized that he can't fix it. He can't just say, uh, away from me, get behind me. It's, it's right there. It's like haunting him. It's like, it's like a voice calling from the closet. Pay attention to me. I'm here. Don't think you can forget me. And David says, I, I, I need help. I can't do this on my own. It, it's haunting me. It's, it's terrifying me. And so in his brokenness, he does the only thing that makes sense. He turns to God. He turns to God. Now, you need to know that when you sin, 
there are two separate lies that Satan will whisper in our ear. First one is this. No big deal. No big deal. What you did, everybody does it. I mean, it's God understands. It's part of being human. It's just a mistake. He whispers in your ear something to make your sin feel very insignificant, much smaller than it really is. But when you come to terms with, no, that's no small deal. That was actually a big deal. Then he turns to the other side. Oh, yeah, it is a big deal. It's so big, God can't forgive you. It's so big, you should feel guilty about it for the rest of your life. How, how ashamed you should be of yourself. You're a, you're a Christian. You know better. I mean, think of David. You know what David's label is in the Old Testament? A man after what? God's own heart. David did this? For those of you who've been in the church for a long time, those of you who your family sees you as a strong spiritual leader, godly woman, godly man, you're a church leader, you're an elder, you're a pastor. I mean, I've, surely we don't sin anymore, do we? But think about this. This wasn't at the beginning of David's spiritual journey. It was well into it. And at this point, he comes face to face with his fallenness. And you and I are wise to learn from David. None of us are above sin. We still struggle. We can't fix it ourselves. We're helpless. We need God to fix it. Here's why sin is such a big problem. Yes, it wounded Bathsheba. Yes, it probably angered her father. Yes, his son died as a consequence of David's sin. I'm sure David's um, fighting comrades looked to him differently after this event. By the way, I got thinking about Bathsheba. We don't know what was going on in her life, but can you imagine after all this came out? I mean, she, she was taken in by David. He married her. Had, they had their baby together. Maybe she felt like, okay, this, is, this will all work out. He shouldn't have raped me, but okay, I can forgive him. We'll deal with this. But when the truth starts to come out that David killed my husband, David killed, David killed my husband, this man that, that I'm sleeping with, he's, he killed my husband, the, my boy, boyhood uh, Uh, our childhood love. You know, we've loved each other since we were teenagers. We got married. We've been devoted to each other. I have one husband. He had one wife. David, who has hundreds of wives, sleeps with all these women. I'm just a number to him. He killed my husband, and our baby died because of what he did? Think of how intimate they would be. Think of what's going on in her heart. Think of what David has to hear every now and then, or the look that Bathsheba would give him when he looks at another woman. I mean, all this is going on, and and yes, there's guilt, and there's shame, and there's other people he's hurt, but David knows this. At the end of the day, the person I've hurt most is God, is God. Sin is my rebellion against God. See, God has laws that he's given to mankind. Because God made us, God can tell us how to live. And not that God's trying to box us in. God's just telling us, this is how life works best. You have no other gods before you but me. You honor me as your God. You, you honor the Sabbath. You honor your parents. You don't covet. You don't commit adultery, murder, and lie. You don't do all those things. Now, these are things that keep your relationships with other people in a good place. So, you know, what's interesting is if we would vote as a culture on the Ten Commandments, how many do you think would survive? We'd probably be down to two commandments, maybe three. Because there's so many of them that we don't think are big deals, and yet God says, no, no, that's a big deal to me. Adultery, that's a big deal. Lying, 
big deal. Satan lies. My people don't. My children don't. And yet we minimize all those things. And when you look at David, he broke half of them. No other gods before him. Well, right now, my God is sex. I've got a, I've got a need. I've got a desire. And, and it's even worth sacrificing my devotion and integrity to God to, to get what I want at this moment. He commits adultery. He follows that up with murder. He'd already coveted his neighbor's wife. And then he lies constantly about it. Five of the Ten Commandments David has broken. And he knows that ultimately behind his sin, because it wasn't human laws that said adultery was wrong or lying was wrong or coveting was wrong. It was God. And that's why he's saying, I know I've heard all these other people, but really the one I've offended the most is God because he's the one who established the rules. And so here's something I think David's pointing out to us. And if you really dig into sin and look at it correctly, you'll discover this. You and I are far worse than we'd ever imagine. And God is more gracious than we could ever dream. And because of that, God is way over here and we are way over here. And there is a chasm between the two. We, it's not like we're, we're close to God and, and we're walking with God. No, we're not. We're rebelling against God. And we're way over here and God's here. And, and, we're, and there's, there's, a, there's a chasm that can't be crossed. We can't cross it. We can try to be good enough to, to repair the damage, but there's nothing you can do to repair all the damage of the past. So our attempts to build bridges are, are so small. Like we can build a bridge a little distance. You don't get anywhere. You need a complete bridge. And so what God did is he built a bridge from his side to us by sending his son to this earth. Jesus is called the mediator, the one who stands between God and man. He took on sinful man's um, punishment for sin upon himself. And though he was God, both were combined in his body on the cross. And he died to become the bridge between us and God. The way you get reconciled with God is through Jesus Christ, not through your own effort. Our sin is our rebellion against God. And David goes on to say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he doesn't remember the situation that caused his pregnancy. I don't think he's saying, Well, my mom did something she shouldn't have done, got pregnant, and that's how I came into the world. I don't take what David's saying literally. Many times people in Scripture are voicing their personal view. It doesn't mean it's God's view. Some who read this passage say, well, there it is, right there in Scripture. In the womb, a baby is guilty of sin. Well, think about that. If a, if a baby in the womb is guilty of sin, if that baby uh, is miscarried, he's shot straight to hell because he was never, never, ever accepted Christ to forgive that sin. That's a horrible place to be. That's why a lot of churches baptize babies to say, okay, we got you covered. You know, the Bible says in many places that you and I are responsible not for Adam's sin, but for our sin. And the soul that sins is a soul that will die. And so when a child gets to the age of making their own choices and sin, that's when they're responsible, not inside the mother's womb. I believe what David's really saying is, as far back as I can remember, I've been struggling with sin. See, sin is, sin is a constant struggle. It's something we constantly struggle with. And David struggled with it. He says, I've always struggled with it. Maybe it really came up publicly in this incident, but it's been a battle my whole life. Can you identify with that? 
Sin isn't just an event, it's a constant struggle. That's part of the problem. You're going to sin again and again. Hopefully not as much. Hopefully we've learned. Hopefully we're, we're correcting some behaviors, but we will still struggle with it our whole lives. And David's struggling with it. That's why it's so important we admit the issues we have with sin. Not glossing over them, not minimizing them, but owning them. We're not, we're not blaming other people for it. We're looking at ourselves in the mirror. And that's where David finds the remedy. How do, how do you recover from sin? How do you reverse the damages of sin? Well, God, in his grace, brought conviction to David's heart so he could address this. And if God ever brings conviction through your, to your heart through a friend, a parent, a, a teacher, a sermon, where something gets brought up that you thought was put in the past and God, God kind of pricks your conscience... It probably is the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is a piece of unfinished business in your life, and it's time to deal with it, okay? And you know what the Holy Spirit, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is is to convict of sin, not to punish us, but to reveal the problem that needs to be dealt with. And so David recognizes he's got a problem, he's now going to deal with it, and here's what he does. He does three things. In a very, if we want to cons- boil it down to some simple steps, three things he does. First, he takes ownership of his wrongs. He takes ownership of his wrongs. Chuck Colson uh, said, if there is anything worse than our sins, it's our infinite capacity to rationalize it away. Well, isn't that true? I-, I would say a corollary to that is this, our ability to blame others for our actions. He made me that way. She made me do it. No, they didn't. They may have contributed, but you still held the key to the action. You did it. You did it. Nobody tempted you enough to make you sin. You chose it. I chose it. You know three of the hardest words ever to um, issue out of your mouth? I was wrong. I was wrong. What I did was wrong. Flat out, I take responsibility for it. I'm drawing the circle around myself, looking at me. I was wrong. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so confession simply means this. I admit to the truth of what I did. See, sometimes we think confession means to apologize for it. No, it doesn't. It means to admit that you've done it. It means to see what God sees, the truth about yourself. Last week, I had shared um, about a movie that's out um, called Gosnell. And I, I shared with you just some things about abortion, even some of my personal views of that that I think Scripture teaches. Um, but someone talked to me this week, a woman. And she said, I know that what you said was true, and I know you didn't intend it this way. But I felt very ashamed because there was a time in my life when I didn't know Jesus, and I had an abortion. And, and I felt judged in the service when you talked about it. And I'd have to say, because I haven't gone through it, that I probably came across as insensitive. And if any of you women went through that situation, experienced that, I am sorry, I was wrong. I wasn't wrong in what I said about abortion. I was wrong in how I said it. And I deeply apologize. Sometimes when we've gone through things in our past and carried the wounds, and someone just flippantly brings it up and stirs it up all over again, it's very painful. Some of you have gone through divorce. The Bible says divorce is a sin. Yet 
You don't need to be beaten up over it. We don't know all the circumstances that contributed to it. We don't know the pain that you experienced, and I don't want to make light of it. And so that was my sin. I take ownership of it. I was wrong. We have to take ownership of our sin. And then we have to call out to God. David, in a number of different ways, begins to call out to God. and He says things like this, blot out all my transgressions. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Let me hear the sounds of joy again. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Don't hide your face from me, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. By the way, people in the Old Testament didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon people in specific positions. David was anointed to be king, had the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide him in his role as a king. And he's just crying out to God, God, don't, don't take your spirit's power from me. When you sin, I just want you to, to know this, when you sin, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. God hasn't removed his spirit from you. The spirit is grieving in you for you to deal with it and heal this issue. And so David's crying out, but there's one phrase in there that's kind of mysterious. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Now, what in the world is that? What is hyssop? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament, hyssop was a branch, a fragrant branch that was used in some ceremonies. For one, it was used in ceremonies for symbolizing the cleansing of a leper. But probably the most memorable incident with hyssop was when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and the night they were going to be released... God said to, take the, to celebrate this Passover meal and take the blood of the lamb, dip the branches of hyssop in it, and like a paintbrush, because the hyssop stalks were kind of firm, begin to put blood on the doorpost of your homes. And so when the death angel comes, he will pass over your home because the blood has been applied to the house, symbolically stating that God has covered your sin. You will not be judged for it. And you need to know that God has provided a Passover lamb who shed his blood on a cross for you. And we cry out, God, cover me with the blood of Christ. I know that sounds kind of gross, but what it means is take the branch, put it over the doorpost of my life and pass judgment over me through your grace and I will be clean. See, Jesus went to a cross to die for you. See, here's what's amazing about grace. God didn't just say, hey, No big deal. We can forgive that. He said, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. All those things you've done, it's huge. But here's what I'm going to do. My son's willing to die in your place to take the punishment, the just punishment you deserve. Do you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for every rapist. He died for every mass murderer. He died for every liar. He died for every coveter. He died for every child molester. The things that we would say, I don't think I could ever forgive that. God says, I can. Because my son suffered the judgment for that on the cross. When we cry out, God, include me in that. Take Take the blood and cover me. And then David did one more thing. He committed to being changed. He said, create in me a new heart. God, do something new in me because I don't, there's something broken in me. There's something wrong in me and I need your heart because I don't desire your things. Sometimes you may feel like I'm not being the good Christian I should be. Have you prayed this? God created me a new heart that longs to do your will. See, David goes on to say, I know what you desire is not sacrifices. It's not like I could offer some animal and then you go, well, that settles it for me. The sacrifices you desire are a broken and contrite heart. 
Does your heart break over sin? If it does, that's good. That's a sacrifice that God says, I love that. Because if your heart's broken and you bring it to me, I can heal it.